First off, I want to thank everybody for joining us here today on From the Head of the Bed. This is Cassidy Padgett here. I'm actually in Louisville, Kentucky with Dr. Alden. Dr. Alden's got a very interesting topic that he's going to be talking to us today um, about. But first off, I'm going to go ahead and give Dr. Alden a chance to introduce himself, tell us a little bit about himself and how he ended up here at Cosair. I'm Steve Alden. I'm a pediatric anesthesiologist at Cosair in Louisville. My special interests are the difficult airway and cardiac anesthesia. I've been here for 20 years. I came by way of pediatrics at the University of Virginia and all my anesthesia training at the University of Washington and affiliated hospitals in Seattle. All right. Well, Dr. Alden, we certainly want to thank you for joining us today. It's certainly a pleasure to have you on here with us today. Um, today, Dr. Alden's going to be talking to us about myths, mistakes, and misconceptions in pediatric anesthesia. We're going to focus in on two areas, and those two areas that we're going to be talking about is going to be the cricoid ring and anticholinergics. So without further ado, we're going to go ahead and turn it over to Dr. Alden and see what he's got for us. Thank you, Cassidy. I want to encourage everyone to be critical. And when I say that, I mean I want you to be critical listeners and I want you to be critical readers. This is the internet, after all, and there is no peer review. But even when you read peer-reviewed journals, I think it's critical to be critical when you look at these things. And that relates to our topic today. There are a lot of misconceptions, if not downright errors, that get passed along over time and become dogma. And that occurs in every field, and anesthesia is no exception. So today we're going to look at, as we said, two different areas and try to critically pick out a few things that may not be exactly as you have been taught. Um, the first of those is the cricoid ring itself, that very important piece of cartilage, the only complete cartilaginous ring in the trachea, which for many, many years was felt to be the narrowest part of the pediatric airway. Along with that teaching was the concept that the pediatric airway was funnel-shaped, and as the individual matured, it progressed to the columnar shape of the adult. And if one goes back to the original reference, you find that the authors say, hey, this was done in cadavers. This may not be true in living people. Nonetheless, that became dogma for over 30 years, probably 40 years. That was dogma. And that's certainly what I was taught as a resident. And I have lots of examples of old anesthesia textbooks that say that. But that time has passed. In the May issue of Anesthesia and Analgesia in 2009, uh, there was an article by DeLal, actually the second of two very good articles looking at the shape of the pediatric airway. This one was accompanied by an editorial by Matayoma, and I encourage you to look at those for more information. But basically, it debunked this teaching that had been around for 40 years. The cricoid ring is not the smallest part of the infant larynx. That is still the laryngeal inlet, just like it is in adults. And it's not really seem to be a progression from a funnel to columnar. That also seems to be false. But that's not to say that the cricoid ring needs to then disappear from our thinking about the pediatric airway. And this is what I mean by a critical approach to looking at things and looking at information. The cricoid ring may not be the smallest part of the infant airway. Now, when I say that, Go back and look at DeLaw's article. There's only one child in there that's under six months of age. So we really don't have information on neonates. 
we do have information from six months of age up, and it's pretty convincing, but we don't have neonatal information. We don't have very young infant information. So even this has to be taken with some skepticism about what it tells us about babies. But what we do know about babies clinically, what any neonatologist will tell you is that the infant larynx is very elastic. You put in a 3.0 tube and three, four, or five days later, you find yourself changing to a 3.5 tube because you have so much leak, you can no longer ventilate the baby. A lot of times the babies are breathing on their own and they get away with that and then they come to the OR and we anesthetize them or paralyze them and we can't ventilate them because without the baby's help and the baby's doing most of their work in the NICU, now we can't ventilate them. Why not? Well, because the tube has either been, has either stretched the infant larynx, including the cricoid ring, or the cricoid ring was not tight enough to call it to prevent a leak. Or when the child is awake, they're abducting their cords, that smallest part of their way, and they're preventing leak and they're letting the ventilator be more effective. Regardless, what we find is that even though the cricoid may not be the smallest part of the airway, it is the only complete cartilaginous part of the airway. And as such, it still deserves our respect and consideration. If we're going to have a post-operative injury, post-operative croup, post-operative subglottic stenosis, it's most likely to occur at this area where we have a complete cartilaginous ring. So if we're using a cuffed tube, we want to keep it away from the cricoid ring. And we want to bear all of these things in mind. So the old teaching that the cricoid ring is the smallest part of the infant airway has been debunked. But um, the cricoid ring is still the only complete cartilaginous part of the airway. It is probably the part that stretches the least when a tube is placed. And we still want to be very careful about not putting too much pressure on it. We still want to check a leak. We still want to try to make sure that our cuff is below the cricoid ring. And so that those are things that we need to think about and be critical about when we evaluate this kind of information about the cricoid ring. The second piece of information about the cricoid that I want to talk about today is cricoid pressure, the Selleck maneuver. You know, we go back to the 1960s and Dr. Selleck's paper, and we're talking about women in labor under ether in the head down position. Now, I don't know about you, but I have never induced ether anesthesia in the head down position. And if I did, I would fully expect people to puke. Selleck's original description said, hey, this works. And then there were some really good cadaver studies done, um, both in infants and in adults, that said, hey, you know, the Selleck maneuver works. It compresses the esophagus. But compressing the esophagus in a cadaver and compressing the esophagus in a living patient are two different things. And I'm sure if you've done anesthesia for any length of time, you've had the opportunity to be doing a, a rapid sequence induction. Somebody's putting cricoid pressure on and you find you can't ventilate and you need to ventilate. So the cricoid pressure has to be released. Or somebody's doing cricoid pressure and you go to intubate and either you can't see or you can't pass the tube. And so cricoid pressure has to be released. So cricoid pressure is a an interesting phenomenon. The original paper that described it, that put all this into motion, is completely out of date because the anesthetics that were used at that time are completely out of date. Now, that's not to say that vomiting and aspiration are not real problems. They are. But it does mean that we need to look critically at vomiting and aspiration and cricoid pressure. 
the anesthesia and analgesia issue of November of 2009 had an interesting x-ray study of how well cricoid pressure works and two very interesting editorials. Um, one was written by Ovisopium in Salem, and Salem, interestingly, has published two papers that I know of, one long before and one actually since that time on the Selleck maneuver, um, and at least one of those was specifically in children. Uh, the other editorial is written by Jerry Lerman, who at that time I believe was still at Sick Kids in Toronto, although he's now in Buffalo. And these editorials really do a nice job of putting into perspective how important cricoid pressure during rapid sequence intubation should be. Neither one of the editorials quite go out on a limb far enough to say we should avoid cricoid pressure. Um, interestingly, there was a medical legal case in England, of all places, that, that where the judge found that, well, even though it's not been proven to work, cricoid pressure is still standard of care, and it wasn't done in this case, so I'm going to find for the plaintiffs. I think it's unfortunate that judgments like that determine how people are going to practice medicine, because that's really not how we should be making these decisions. I do want to say several things about cricoid pressure, and number one, cricoid pressure gets put on too early. Number two, cricoid pressure gets put on either too hard or too soft. It's very difficult to do it just right. Number three, there are no good data on how much cricoid pressure you need in children of different ages. The only real data is in adults. So it's very difficult to know or to train or to give someone biomechanical feedback for how much cricoid pressure to use in the pediatric setting. Um, in an infant or a small child, clearly you need much less than in an adult, but there are no data to tell us how much to use. I think that the thing that is most important when we're doing a rapid sequence induction is not cricoid pressure. I think the thing that is most important when we're doing a rapid sequence induction is to not inflate the stomach and number two, to not put a laryngoscope in the patient's mouth until you have complete neuromuscular blockade. So for me, when I'm doing a rapid sequence induction, I want to do really thorough pre-oxygenation so I can maximize the time that I have before I have to do something, that something being either intubation or mask ventilation. And number two, I want to put a neuromuscular twitch monitor on that is serially following twitch as the patient goes to sleep. Because the last thing you want to do is put a laryngoscope in and induce forceful vomiting. Because if there's anything that the literature agrees on, it is that cricoid pressure is not effective at preventing forceful vomiting. Passive reflux and aspiration, yes, but it's not going to do anything for forceful vomiting. So if you put your laryngoscope in and the patient's not paralyzed and they're not deep enough, and it's easy in a rapid sequence induction sequence to be in a place where both those things are true. Patient's not deep, they're not completely paralyzed, you're in a hurry, you put the scope in, they vomit, then you're much more likely to get into aspiration. Personally, I don't use cricoid pressure in every situation that's considered a classic rapid sequence. I prefer not to. Um, but, you know, I'm old and I'll be my own expert witness at my malpractice trial. It's still standard of care. And it's unfortunate that we are in a position where we have a standard of care that can cause vomiting, that can cause laryngeal injury, that can cause difficulty with mask ventilation, that can cause difficulty with intubation. That's probably still where we are, but I think the important thing to realize here is that this is not 
a benign maneuver. It's not an easy to reproduce maneuver. Um, and it's something that I think should be taken very seriously each time it's done. I think you should be very critical about, do I want to or not want to do cricoid pressure for this patient? Because the jury is still out on how effective it is. And the jury is still out on how negative it is. The problems are not frequent, but let's face it, vomiting and aspiration are very rare phenomena, even in the full stomach patient coming for a rapid sequence in induction. The third thing I want to say about the cricoid ring has to do with cricoid punctures. And there are some people who have said that cricoid punctures should not be routinely performed in children or should not be performed in children. And I think that that is an unfortunate place that we have come to. It used to be 20 years ago that cricoid punctures for airway analgesia were commonly performed in patients of all ages. And as our airway equipment and our fiber optic scopes, et cetera, have gotten better and better, our need for cricoid puncture and our need to anesthetize the airway has decreased. And I think our skills in that area have consequently decreased also. I will say that I have done at least 50 cricoid punctures in children of various ages. I have not seen any significant complications, but I will agree with Ovisapian and Wheeler that, hey, the cricoid ring and the cords in a child are millimeters apart and you need to be careful. So I think that if you need to do it, you should do it. I think that Ideally, you should have training on an animal model first. And very interestingly, I will say that in France now, there is a push to use ultrasound as a routine assistant for cricoid puncture. And as we all become more and more adept with ultrasound, we may see that that is the new tool used for cricoid puncture. But I think that cricoid puncture remains a valuable tool um, in children and in the management of the difficult airway in particular, uh, right down to and including small neonates. I have certainly done cricoid punctures in Pierre Robin neonates um, to assist with anesthetizing their airway so I could do a true awake fiber optic intubation, and I personally find that to be very valuable. The other area I'd like to discuss briefly is anticholinergics, and there are several aspects of anticholinergics that I want to touch on uh, for, actually. And I, you may have heard Dr. Rose's talk on children are not small adults, but I want to impress upon you that children are also not large neonates. And I say that because it's important that you understand historically that pediatric anesthesia is a specialty that has grown in from both ends. We take a lot of information from adults, and historically, we've also taken a lot of information from neonates. And the reason for that is that the very first intensive care units in the world were NICUs. Neonatologists were really the first specialists that said, hey, you know, we need somebody in the nursery all the time taking care of these little babies. I can't be in my general pediatrician office and still take care of these small, critically ill babies. And so there was very early recognized as soon as the technology was there, a need that there be neonatologists long before we had PICUs, long before we had SICUs, long before we had neurosurgical ICUs, long before we had MICUs and, and CICUs, et cetera, et cetera, we had NICUs. NICUs are really the first. And because of that, and because neonates are so fragile, 
a lot of things were learned about neonates that got passed on to other critically ill children, including children coming for anesthesia. One of the things that got passed on was said, hey, you know what? Kids get bradycardic at the drop of a hat. We need to give them all atropine. What a crock. You know, children don't become bradycardic at the drop of a hat. Now, I intubated an eight-week-old yesterday who dropped his heart rate from 146 to 104 with laryngoscopy, who did not get an anticholinergic pre-med, who had no desaturation. Well, I say he had no desaturation. His saturation was in the 80s because that's where he lives all the time because he has congenital heart disease. So some people would say, you know, you should have pretreated that baby with atropine. But I don't regard any medication as completely benign, even something as simple as atropine. Atropine clearly crosses the blood-brain barrier. It clearly can cause an increase in temperature. It clearly can cause a significant increase in heart rate, which in this particular baby I did not want because of his cardiac anatomy. So I did not want to use atropine, and I chose not to, and we intubated, and heart rate came right back, and we were fine. Now, that was not a dangerously low heart rate for this baby. If it had started to get too much lower, we could have stopped the stimulus and come out and given something, uh, possibly some glycopyrrolate, possibly some atropine. But clearly, atropine is not needed for everyone. You go back in pediatric anesthesia in 1999, and there's actually an article by uh, George, A-O-H-R, talking about, you know, shouldn't we stop the routine use of anticholinergics? And I was surprised to see that because I thought that had stopped in the 80s. But I can tell you back in the 80s, it was not uncommon for children to get pre-med with either oral or IM medications, and atropine was commonly included in those medications. In fact, one of my mentors, Rosemary Orr, told me that if you wanted to cancel a kid coming for routine surgery, you just double the dose of atropine and came back 30 minutes later and checked the temperature, they'd have a fever and you could cancel it and go play golf. Um, those days are gone forever. But I don't think we need to use atropine or any anticholinergic routinely for children. I don't really think there's an indication for it in older children unless you think that they have a history of having bradycardia with induction. If you are going to do eye muscle surgery and you're concerned about it, you can talk about whether you should use prophylactic versus treatment anticholinergic. But it certainly shouldn't be given routinely for all children. That's something that came out of the neonatal world and is clearly not needed for older children. Another myth that also came from the neonatal world um, is the myth that there's a minimum dose of atropine. And we were talking about this 25 years ago, but really it wasn't until 2011 in pediatrics that Barrington finally published something debunking uh, the minimum dose of atropine, which had been 100 micrograms of atropine, was considered the minimum dose of atropine for many, many years. And really this has been in the Harry Lane handbook, it's been in all the PALS manuals, and it's finally... Um, been debunked and removed from that. And having done many, many neonates, I can tell you that even a small dose of anticholinergic will give you a brisk and reproducible increase in heart rate. And you, there is no need to be um, considering a 100 microgram minimum dose of atropine as necessary for these small children. The third thing I'd like to mention about anticholinergics is the concept that atropine is much more potent than glycopyrrolate. And there is a very slight difference in their efficacy given intravenously, 
but it is very small. Um, two of the three studies that I'll mention show no difference at all, and the third showed no statistically significant difference between them. So if we want to really be scientific, we're supposed to say there's no difference. There is one study back in the early 80s that said that glycopyrrolate um, did not cause an increase in heart rate. But where did all this come from originally? Well, originally this came from the fact that people used to give IM and PO pre-meds to kids. And when they did that, glycopyrrolate was not very effective. It's a quaternary ammonium. It's a big molecule. Atropine's a tertiary amine. It's a smaller molecule. It's better absorbed. So if you're drawing up an anticholinergic and you intend to give it intramuscularly because you have a difficult mask and you're worried you might have to give succinylcholine IM and you want to have something to give IM, yes, atropine is the drug of choice. But if you're going to be, have it for intravenous use, you can use an equipotent dose of glycopyrrolate. A variety of publications there, all dating back to the 80s, showing that um, atropine and glycopyrrolate really are interchangeable when it comes to increasing the heart rate in children. And I'm not even going to talk about their comparison as anti-sialagogues because I have no idea that there's any really useful information in any of these studies about how juicy the, the airway was. Uh, it's a very subjective thing. There's really no measurable data. I think that they both work comparably well and that there's no reason to lean toward atropine if you have an IV in place. In fact, I personally, for routine use, will always lean toward glycopyrrolate because glycopyrrolate is not going to cross the blood-brain barrier. It is not going to give you CNS side effects um, that atropine might. And the final thing I want to mention is the concept of atropine as a code medication. Um, and I mention this because I think it's a crock. It's still there. It's still in PALS. But unless you have a primary vagal or other reason that the patient is bradycardic, and they have a pulse and everything else, giving atropine or glycopyrrolate to treat a low heart rate is rarely going to be effective. If you're in a real code situation, I just skip right over atropine. I mean, you can give one dose to follow the protocol, but you definitely don't want to give more than one dose. There's no reason to think it's going to be effective, and you clearly increase the chance of having anticholinergic side effects. Um, if you really have bradycardia and it's something that needs work, you need to give epinephrine. We clearly know that bradycardia delays the onset of action of any intravenous drug. Atropine in particular has been studied there. In 1986 in anesthesiology, uh, Zimmerman and Stewart demonstrated that bradycardia, if you have a patient who's bradycardic, atropine onset is very slow. And this was a common phenomenon for those of us who remember working with halothane. The patient would become bradycardic, you give atropine, Sometimes people had to do CPR to get the atropine to circulate to the heart to increase the heart rate. But halothane was also a very potent negative inotrope as well as a potent negative chronotrope. And epinephrine really would have been the drug of choice for those patients. And that was the drug of choice in my hands. And I still think that in the code situation, if you're in a real code situation, atropine or glycopyrrolate is not the drug I'm going to reach for first. I'm going to reach straight for the epinephrine. 